Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynes, uh, the second straight day of negotiations in the Major League Baseball labor talks uh, took place in Jupiter, Florida yesterday. Uh, it's viewed, I guess, widely as a step backwards, I guess, in the negotiations by by the, the league. Um, I, there's a, a little give and take going on but not a lot of progress. Yeah. You, you remember the movie, uh, cool hand Luke, uh, Joe, where, where, where the guy goes, we have a, a, a lot of people. It's going to be, it's going to be a reach. It's going to be a reach for a lot of people. Uh, if, if you're going to start with cool hand Luke references, so go ahead. Uh, Paul. <laughs> but, but, but when the guy said the, the warden said, what we have here is a failure to communicate. There you go. <laughs> There's plenty of communicating going on, but nobody's really kind of getting to the point of this thing. And, you know, it, they're both, uh, both sides are like, you know, sleight of hand artists, you know, they give a little, but with the other hand, they're, they're taking, they're taking something back. And I don't think you negotiate this way. And I, right now, you know, I really, you know, um, I can't see the season starting on time. I just, I just don't, I don't just, I don't see a deal coming out of this, even if they meet, you know, for the next, what, right through one, five one more day. days. Yeah. I, yeah I, they've I got can't see, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if every move is so minuscule, you know, like this, it's just, you know, how, and they're, how do you, how do you get a, get a basic agreement on this? They've got five days until the, you know, sort of self-imposed uh, February 28th deadline to get the regular season started without any uh, delay in, in that regard. Uh, so who knows? Uh, if we get past that February 28th deadline, then they'll have to, you know, project another deadline where they could reasonably play a, a full season is what you're going to start getting there. And then after that, they'll have to project a deadline where you're playing a season with the limited number of games that are, are fewer than 162. Uh, the problem right now is that they haven't yet addressed the biggest of the core issues uh, in, in any seriousness, which is the, the competitive balance tax, the luxury tax, uh, those discussions are supposed to happen today. Yeah, well, we'll see. And, uh, you know, if it goes like, uh, you know, the first two days have gone, you know, I can't see much progress being made. You know, the, the owners are probably, you know, they, they went from 210 to 214 
on the on the CB uh, uh, the, the competitive balance tax for the first year. The players went down from 248 to 245 for the first year, but after that, uh, I think uh, the owners want to grow it to $10 million, you know, annually. The players want to push it at 30 $30 million annually. It just uh, it just it seems like uh, that. These two teams, instead of coming together, these two sides are, are going in opposite ways here. Uh, yesterday's conversations involved uh, talks around uh, the, the major league minimum, where the, the players union, uh, in, instead of lowering their ask, they, they raised it uh, up over $800,000 uh, for, uh, for the, the major league minimum salary. Uh, but in other areas, they sort of uh, pulled back their asks a little bit. Um, and and there have been, you know, it, it's like one st- uh, two steps forward, one step back every time. Yeah, you know, they, they, they kind of, uh, they lowered the Super 2 uh, percentage from 80, 80% of those players to 75%. Uh, and they dropped the, uh, you know, they want the top eight picks involved in the, uh, the draft lottery instead of eight, you know, from eight, they dropped to seven. Uh, the, the owners are at four. So you would think there's some compromise there, but then, like you said, Joe, they, they threw him a curveball and, and raised the, uh, the minimum salary ask. And, you know, if, if I, I just don't get it. I, I, I guess maybe is this the way to negotiate? I, I, I guess you do. And maybe the players are so afraid that they, you know, they got people, the perception is they, they lost the last two bargaining sessions that, you know, they're, they're really kind of playing hardball now, but you know, this isn't the way you get a deal done. No. So we'll, we'll see how the, um, the negotiations turn out uh, after today's session, the, the pressure is really starting to mount. And, you know, I, I, I don't even really, I guess I'm saying that because, I hope the pressure is starting to mount, but I don't know that the pressure is starting to mount because uh, I don't know that either side views that February 28th deadline as something that they really can't go past. I, I, I just don't really think that. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Joe. I think there's still some wiggle room. You know, you, they've got the 162 game schedule is played in 186 days. So, uh, you know, there's, there's still probably some wiggle room there if they don't get a deal done by Monday to play a full season, but you know, you're just going to have to eliminate some off days and maybe who God knows who they're going to schedule a double header. Who knows? No, no, please. And so we keep around the seven inning double headers. If that's the case, that, that would be the worst thing possible. All right, let's move on. Uh, we did have uh, I did put a post up uh, last week or the earlier this week uh, regarding Robot umpires and how um, the automated ball strike zone is coming to Major League Baseball at some point in the future. I think we got to get well clear of uh, these negotiations and these labor talks right now before we even start, uh, you know, thinking about or hearing about any of this. But uh, there have been reports that AAA, some divisions in AAA are hiring uh, technicians to work the automated ball strike zone that's going to be implemented in their divisions this year. So, you know, if we're talking about major, uh, the, the, the robot umpires being one level away from major league baseball, I think that's a pretty clear indication of where things are going. And you know what? I, I, 
I hear the the outcry and the you know the, the conversation from especially from players themselves from catchers I talked to Austin Hedges and you know he's not very you know on board with the whole idea uh, you, you talk about a, a catcher who doesn't really necessarily make offense first uh, for him uh, who relies on his ability to frame pitches as a, a way that he stays in the major leagues this is going to be a big change for a lot of players and managers, but it's a change that's that's coming, and it's a change that a lot of people want to see. Yeah, uh, you know, fans have been crying for this for a long time, Joe. You know, the the technology is is available. Uh, obviously, they tried it in some you know independent leagues, the, the Atlantic League. Uh, so they they've got some da- uh, MLB has da- data on this. Um, you know, I don't think it's you know it's going to be an adjustment. What you know, you're not going to what the strike zone is going to be called, what kind of up and down instead of sideways. Right. I mean, well, be, uh, here's the thing, you know, that one inch off the plate, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that strike. Right. Side, uh, side to side. That's going to be, you know, that's non-negotiable inside outside corners are going to be non-negotiable. It's, it's going to be 17 inches. That's what, that's what the strike zone is. The, the, the real variation will be up and down. That's where the, a lot of the adjustment will have to be. Uh, but I, I guess the, the biggest thing, what, what we've heard from Terry Francona, what we've heard from some hitters is their fear that, you know, uh, the actual physical plate itself is in the strikes. Is like if a ball comes from up top and drops down, it can actually hit the plate. It can actually, you know, and, and curve balls and breaking pitches, pitchers that can throw you know, just like ridiculously funny stuff are going to figure out a way to, to game the system and have pitches that normally a batter would just, you know, spit on and say, forget about it. Those are going to be called strikes by a computer. And that's where uh, the adjustment is really going to have to take place. So, yeah. And uh, you know, like anything, I think what 11 AAA ballparks are going to have it this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbus is not one of them from what I understand. Um, so you know, it, it's going to take, you know, I don't know how, how soon it's coming, Joe, but I, I think it's a good thing they're doing it in the minors uh, that the players, you know, will be used to it, you know, in two, three, four years that perhaps those players at AAA will, you know, be in the big leagues. It, it won't be such a radical adjustment, but to, you know, veteran guys like Jose Ramirez and, and guys that, like that who, who have never played with it, I mean, if it comes, <clears throat> it's gonna it's gonna get their attention. That that adjustment will come. I I, I think I think we're gonna see a uh, pitch clock before we see a robot umpire in in the big leagues, uh, and and that's the that's sort of the point. Here's the thing for me, in in the NFL, you've got replay, you you've got uh, all these technology and all these advances. In the NBA, you have the ability to go back and get a call right with with uh, timing and 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 all that. In Major League Baseball, there exists a technology now where you can get the strike zone correct and consistent every time. And there's no reason why that your your product shouldn't be correct every time as you present it to fans and, and, and players. It's there, there's no reason to not have it if it's 100 percent right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it takes some getting used to, you know, we saw the you know, replay. Uh, you know, the, the play on the base is the, you know, the, the stolen base, the guy 
bouncing off a bag for a second and getting tagged out. You know, it's it's you know, it wasn't the intention of the rule, the replay rule, but now it's part of it. And I'm sure there's gonna be other there's gonna be parts of stuff like that with with the robot umpire. But but more than that, you you go back to it, that's presupposing, you know, we can't even think of a time or uh, a situation right now that didn't have replay. You know, replay has be, become such a part of the game now that it, they're used to it. And back before when replay was coming to the game, people were outraged, and it was you know the, it's it's such a a terrible tragic travesty that you're you're changing the game this way. Can you imagine? Can you remember a time when replay didn't serve a, a, a big part of the game, uh, you know, or or at least one that you don't necessarily even sort of feel anymore, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I like replay. I think the game needs it. It saves umpires, and you know, it's many. It gets more calls right than it gets wrong. I mean, you want you want the games to be played fairly, and to teams that deserve to win. It should win if if it comes down to one call. Well, we uh, we sort of posed this question to our subtext subscribers. Uh, again, uh, throw a plug in here for subtext uh, as we're getting ready for the Guardian season. Uh, Guardian subtext on Cleveland.com, uh, Cleveland.com slash subtext to sign up, or if you uh, if you want to two one six two nine eight four three four six send a text message to that number. And we will get you signed up uh, and you can uh, text back and forth with myself and Hoinsey, uh, get breaking news and insight and analysis on what's going on uh, every day. Uh, one of the things that we did after I posted that story about robot umpires was uh, we, we went in and we asked our, our subtexters what they thought about it. Uh, and, and they did not, uh, Hoinsey, they did not hold back. Uh, they were <laughs> they were quite vocal uh, about um, you know wanting to or wanting to not see um, uh, robot umpires uh, automated strike zone in Major League Baseball. Uh, here's a texter who says it's worth experimenting. If it fails, baseball can move along. One thing you always hear from players, coaches, managers is that they want the strike zone to be consistent above all else. A computerized strike zone should be consistent. It's a pretty even-handed take. Uh, and then the next one says just, uh, you know, two words. Absolutely not was the response from this, uh, this <laughs> subtexter who says, uh, Eric, he doesn't, he doesn't want to see it. Um, uh, there's uh, another response from a subtexter. Yes, or make the umps call the same strike zone. And the strike zone, strike zone should be top of the knees to the lettering across the chest, not the belt. If you call more strikes, the batters will swing earlier. And in the count, or earlier in the count, and the game will be faster. And I guess this is sort of one of the things that that uh, a consistent strike zone is gonna is is gonna give you. The the pitchers are gonna have to throw more strikes. Pitchers are gonna have to throw balls in the strike zone, uh, and and batters are are gonna know that, and they're gonna they're, the offense is gonna go up. Yeah, that's a great point, Joe. And uh, you know, you force you force the pitchers into the strike zone and, you know, that'll force more contact you hope and mm -hmm. we'll put, you know, more base runners, more action into the game, which, you know, everybody seems to want. Well, uh, yeah, because the only other weapon that the pitchers would have would be to throw harder and they can't throw much harder than what they're throwing right now. So 
it's it's physically not possible. Uh, texter from the uh, Columbus area code says, "Bring it on, Hoinsey. I'm sick of blown calls." Uh, here's uh, another one from the 440 area code. I'm in favor of it. There's too much variation from umpire to umpire, and I guess that's what uh, one of the things you're going to rob the game of. I guess is uh, the sort of the the tragedy of an Angel Hernandez strike zone versus you know the the uh, the other umpires who are you know really good. The only reason you know Angel Hernandez is because you know that his strike zone is inconsistent and awful. You, that's the only reason you know an umpire's name. So uh, I, I guess that makes sense that the, the guys who who have the really good strike zones you, you you never hear about that. You never hear their names talked about. Yeah, and your story really you know you know, highlighted just how, you know, how good you, major league umpires, the majority of them are, how, how close they do to getting what, 90, what, three, 94%? 94% of, of balls in the strike, in the zone. I mean, if you're only missing four pitches out of, uh, you know, a hundred in the zone for a game, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. I, I can tell you umpires at the, you know, amateur and high school levels don't get those kind of calls that, that kind of percentage that that's just not possible. Uh, here's, um, another response. One, uh, call, I'll give you, I'll give us a couple more. Uh, it's called technology gone berserk, or you could say it another way. The people are making, uh, the people making these decisions are deranged. Hell, what do we need players for? Just a bunch of robots out there. Have you ever, ever watched a movie called the matrix and the umpire missing a call? Uh, and a pitcher or batter getting upset is part of the wonderful game. And so are bad calls on the bases. These things get fans excited. Holy cow, they will destroy the fans uh, being part of the game. They do this. It's a, st- it's, it's a step towards ruining America's game. So, so there's the fire and brimstone, Hoinsey. There's the, uh, the texter who, who doesn't want to see it because they're just decrying technology as taking over. Well, they've taken the, the argue the umpire arguments out of the game already. Replay heads, Joe. Mm-hmm. You know, so you really don't see many umpires ejected anymore. And your story, Ernie Clement, what in the Arizona Fall League or wherever mm-hmm. he was playing, he said there were still players getting kicked out arguing about the the, the robot right. uh, strikes. I I remember I remember a couple of years back I wrote a story about the first guy who got kicked out of an Arizona Fall League game for arguing the automated strike zone. And it's like, how can you argue it? It's, it's there in black and white. They can show you a 3D picture of where that ball crossed the strike zone. You don't like it, but there's nothing you can do about it. That's, that's just the way it is. You know, they, Tito talked about how, you know, he, he's come out to, to tell the umpires on the field. Uh, he, he wants to know who the replay umpire is, what the, what the replay umpire's name is, because he wants him to throw him out from New York um, every time. Because... Because that that's it. There there's no there's no arguing those calls. It's either it's either you made the play or you didn't, and and you can't argue balls and strikes either way. So yeah, there's there's no arguing anymore. Uh, we we wouldn't see the the Lou Pinellas or the the Earl Weavers or uh, anything like that. And you know Tito's Tito's not in the in the kind of place right now in his career where he's he's going to be running out and getting tossed out of too many games anyways. All right. Um, last one. Last one. And this is this should end the argument for you or for anybody who knows you or, or knows uh, Cleveland baseball, Hoinsey. 
uh, for this one from the 216 area code. After seeing the horrible strike zone in the 1995 World Series, I've wanted an automated strike zone ever since then. And that's referring to Joe Brinkman and the, uh, uh, the you know, 17 inches and then some on, the, on home plate for Tom Glavin in game six of the 95 World Series. I think uh, uh, that, that, that right there just ends the argument. Yeah, that that wasn't Kenny Lofton really in disguise, was it? I, that, that, I don't know, man. I, 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 I don't recognize the phone number, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Kenny Lofton, uh, Omar Vizquel, Carlos Baerga, all looking at uh, you know strikes that were a foot outside uh, off the plate uh, from from Tom Glavin that night. All right, uh, let's get into today's uh, top twenty-five most memorable. Uh, Cleveland baseball personality of the last 38 years. Uh, Hoinsey, uh, this is this is a fun one. This is a guy that everybody loved. And we'll, uh, we'll do the, the blind reveal real quickly here. Uh, he won a, a Cy Young Award for uh, the Indians in 2008. He is among the uh, franchise's all-time leaders in strikeouts. He's number seven with 1,265, he uh, allowed 144 home runs uh, for Cleveland. In eight seasons with the Indians, he was 106 and 71 with a 3.83 ERA. Uh, who are we talking about here, Hoinsey? It's got to be C.T. Sabathia. Uh, the, Carson the Charles. The big left-hander, for sure. That's, uh, you know, and – and really, we just recently, last season, had sort of the uh, the CC farewell tour as he came through. He spent 11 years uh, with the Yankees uh, after he was uh, traded away in that um, uh, 2008 season. Um, just what do you remember of he? He really his him coming back to Cleveland. And I'm sorry, it was the 2007 uh, uh, Cy Young Award that he won. But him coming back to Cleveland, it, it just sort of like brought up all of those old, all of those memories of, of his success and, and what the, the city meant to him and, and just seeing him, you know, bring his family back and, and get back in touch with uh, the, the early days of his career here in, in town. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, you know, CeCe was is a lot like uh, Jimmy Tomey. He, he really never changed. You know, he he uh, he was the same guy uh, that made his you know, the same guy who made his rookie debut in, in 2001 as he was when he came back last, you know, when, when he made his farewell tour with the Yankees. He, you know, same down-to-earth guy, uh, just uh, just a, a, a good man, a nice man. And, uh, Joe, this is how fast time has traveled. His son, Karsten, just was accepted to Georgia Tech. He's, you know, he's going to play – He's a he's the first baseman. He's going to play wow. – at Georgia Tech, he's six four and two hundred and forty pounds. So, wow! Oh, the apple did not fall far. That is, <laughs> that's a big person. Uh, wow, that's that's great. That does make me feel very old because I remember covering, uh, you know, CC's rookie season, and that is just crazy to to think that that he's got a kid who's going to play college baseball. Um, what uh, what do you remember about like the first impressions that you got of of this kid who came up in in two thousand and one and won seventeen games as a, as a rookie 
finished second in the American League Rookie of the Year voting. I just remember how big he was. You know, he's he was six six, you know, three hundred pounds, and you thought, God, this guy is just, you know, I, you you really, I'd never seen a pitcher that big, and uh, you know, I remember, I think in two thousand, Charlie Manuel was the manager, and he really wanted him to make the club in two thousand. You know, just by watching him in spring training, Charlie was going, he, he, I just like the way he looks out on the mound. He looks big out there. That's what Charlie would say. And so, but I think they waited a year. They brought him up in 2001 and, you know, just how hard he threw and, and uh, just how, just how strong he was. And, and uh, you know, and I always thought, you know, this guy's going to have to lose weight. And I remember Charlie saying, I asked Charlie Manuel once, uh, you know, what do you think uh, CC's playing weight is? Play, ideal playing weight is. He goes, I'm not sure what his ideal playing weight is, but I, I'm pretty sure it's not 300 pounds. But that's what basically that's what he pitched at his whole career. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he won 251 games. And, you know, he's he might be he's a he's a borderline Hall of Famer. You know, it's Cy Young, you know, uh, he's pitched forever in the postseason. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, he was just that big a guy. And I remember talking to one of the Indians, a straight strength coaches, uh, Tim Maxey. And he said, this is, you know, this is just the way he is. He's built like an offensive tackle and, you know, we don't want to change him. You know, he, we, he's just that that's, that's his body size and that helps him be the pitcher he is. Yeah. I mean, trying to, tr- trying to shoehorn somebody into, what you think is an ideal physical form for them to, to perform at is it's, it, it, it can only result in, in injuries and stress and, you know, mental anguish or whatever, because, because I'm sure CC's heard it all his entire life about uh, you know, what his weight and his size are and all, all that. And the ironic thing is now that he's, he's, you know, retired and, and uh, not playing anymore, he actually looks like he's lost weight. He looks thinner and looks, looks like you go out, go out there and, you know, run a marathon or, or whatever. Uh, but there's, he's, he's athletic. I guess the, the big concern always, you know, especially later when he was with the Yankees was, uh, would he be athletic enough to field his position? You know, teams would like to, uh, to, to drop bunts down in front of him. And I remember him getting upset with a few teams about that, uh, you know, strategy is to, to drop bunts down in front of him and make him feel the ball. Uh, and, and he was able to do, you know, and just enough to, to keep himself on the field and able to do that. Uh, when he was healthy, he was, uh, as good a lefty as, as we've seen. I mean, he's, he's, he, like you said, he threw hard, he threw, uh, a complete mix of pitches and he was effective, uh, for almost 20 seasons. Yeah. And we saw him, you know, really grow up in, in Cleveland. You know, he went from, you know, a pitcher that was a starting pitcher that was learning, a starting pitcher that, you know, got upset when maybe there was an error behind him, uh, a starting pitcher that used to argue with the umpires a lot. Uh, I remember in, in Chicago one night uh, he was he was barking at the umpire. He came off the mound and was moving toward the umpire and Lou Merloni, who was like, you know, five, five was trying mm-hmm. to stop him. It was like, it was like a mismatch. And uh, I don't know if CC got kicked out of that game or not. I think he did, but you know, he had to learn. We saw him learn how to do that and, and to, and finally to, to, to develop into, you know, Cy Young winner in, in 2007 when he had that great year. And I mean, like you said, Joe, in his rookie year, he won 17 games. 
was second in the, in the rookie of the year voting to Ichiro. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, was, he was just a good athlete and, and he loved to hit. I mean, I still remember the home run he hit at Dodger Stadium off Chan Ho Park. He almost hit it out of the, I think he almost hit it into the Indians bullpen down a right field line, almost hit it out of the ballpark. Right. Yeah. That was, that, that's the other thing is he always talked about, you know, being excited to hit in interleague play. And uh, when they would, when they would play in the national league parks, that was one thing that he uh, really always looked forward to because he, he wanted to prove that, that he wasn't just a pitcher. He was an athlete. He could, he could do other things, uh, you know, besides just pitch. Uh, and it, that was sort of his personality too. Uh, he always had, uh, I, I, I like he, he early on, at least in his career, he was always, He'd always wear the the hat sort of uh, tilted to the side, and that yeah, I think he did that uh, to just to 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 get under the skin of a lot of people just because they didn't like it. Uh, a lot of the traditionalists uh, didn't like that. And who's this kid coming out here with his hat tilted to the side and all that? And uh, it, that was just just him, his personality. Yeah, and a lot of lefties did that then. I, I remember Scotty Bales did that. They kind of I don't know if that was a lefty thing. I, I don't know what that was, but. You know, he, he, he did, that did irritate some people. And I'll tell you what, a, a turning point I thought with him, you know, in 2002, you know, he, he uh, was out partying and, uh, you know, got held up by the two Cleveland, Cleveland former Cleveland State baseball, uh, basketball players. You know, mm-hmm. they robbed him. And uh, his mother kind of <laughs> stepped in and, uh, he, you know, because Cece had been living with one of his cousins in Cleveland the cousin vanished and his father came to Cleveland and, and lived with him for the rest of the year. And, and that really kind of, you know, got his head straight. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he kind of got, he, he, he was on the right path after that. Well, and speaking of being on the right path, and we heard this from CC uh, with his sort of autobiographical uh, movie that uh, came out on HBO last year. And, and he, he talked about, he talked openly about struggles with alcohol and, and overcoming all that. And, and just, you know, I, I, when I think of him now, I think of him as just sort of one of those um, in retirement, one of those sort of figureheads that younger ballplayers can look up to uh, because he went through the whole, you know, 11 seasons in New York and he's, he's weathered and seasoned in, in that regard as well. Uh, I, I think uh, there's, there's a lot that he can do now after his playing career uh, he's come back when he comes back. Uh, obviously, a guy like a Tristan McKenzie uh, sees CC Sabathia and and just sees everything that he wants in his career and he wants his career to be. So uh, there's there's a lot of good that that CC has continued to do. Uh, you know, as not just from his his days playing. I, I still can't get over. It's been that long. It's been 15 years since uh, you know he 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 pitched in Cleveland. That's that's crazy. Yeah, and, you know, he, he wins the Cy Young in 2007, first Cy Young by an Indians pitcher, a Cleveland pitcher since Gaylord Perry in, in 1972. And that really starts a run of Cy Young winners in, in Cleveland. Uh, Cliff Lee won it the next year. Then, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Corey Kluber won it a couple times and uh, Shane Bieber, you know, so that really kind of started that pitching kind of revolution in Cleveland. And uh, the sad thing is, in 2000, I, I believe 2008, um, you know, <laughs> CC and, and Cliff Lee 
uh, was it the 2000, maybe 2009. It was 2008 the when they traded Sabathia and 2009 when they traded Lee. Yeah. And, and they, uh, and they ended up facing each other in 2009 in the, in the first game of the world series between the Yankees and Phillies. And uh, right. I, Lee pitched a complete game and uh, I, I think struck out 10 and, and they beat the Yankees. And right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I mean, his, his story is, uh, uh, you know, one of success for, for Cleveland in it. That's how the, the Indians operated back then still kind of operate today, you know, it, building your, your, your pitching staff through, through the draft and, and, you know, having these picks come through and, and, and produce for you the way that CC did. Uh, I just, you know, he's, he, he, he if he would ever, we talked about the Hall of Fame, if he would ever go into the Hall of Fame, he'd probably go in as a Yankee. But, you know, there will be a time when he'll be up for consideration in Cleveland uh, for the this franchise's Hall of Fame. And, and he should be enshrined in, in the Monument Park out there as well. Yeah, I think you're right, Joe. Uh, what uh, he ends his season with a 62.5 war that's right on the edge of, you know, kind of a borderline Hall of Famer. Like we said, 250 wins, over 3,000 strikeouts. Uh, really, just a, a great career. And uh, you know, he's a he, he was an elite pitcher, and he would, I think he's definitely going to you know be considered as a Hall of Famer. And you, who's going to win two? Is there any? You know, there's Nobody's not going to be a whole lot of starting pitchers anymore. Win 251 games anymore? No, no, he'll be, he he could very well be the last 250 game winner that we see. All right, Hoynes, that's going to wrap it up for today's uh, edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. We'll be back at it tomorrow with another, uh, hopefully, more news on uh, this this labor front, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you then. All right, Joe.